You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. The moderators of NSLT are national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Thanks for being with us today. When one thinks of major national security threats to the United States, we often think of hostile foreign armies or terrorist groups. But we're also increasingly becoming aware of the complex and multifaceted threats posed by climate change. On today's podcast, we'll take a closer look at the real risks that climate change poses to national security. Today's guest is Mark Nevitt, a former Navy commander who is currently on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Law School as a Sharswood Fellow. That's right, yes. Did I get it close? Yes. And Mark is a former U.S. Navy aviator. Um, and flew jets off carriers for about six years, and then he transitioned to being a JAG, a military attorney, where his posts included the Department of Defense Regional um, Environmental Council to Norfolk, Virginia, and he just taught a climate change law and policy course this spring semester at Penn, and also teaches a national security law course at Penn as well. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great. Sorry, that's a lot there. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here, and and special thanks, too, to the ABA uh, for addressing this really, really important topic of climate security. So I especially wanted to have Mark on the podcast because he is one of the few JAGs that makes it tough for the JAG lawyers, explaining it to people who watch the JAG series of the 90s that JAGs don't fly airplanes, they're lawyers. (laughs) But he did both. (laughs) (laughs) Not not at the same time, but yeah, that's that's, that's very true of that, absolutely. So thanks for that. (laughs) All right, so let's jump right in. Uh, Mark, can you just give us, you know, a quick overview of some of the challenges that the Department of Defense faces when it comes to environmental issues and why the military is so interested in environmental matters to include uh, threats posed by climate change. So sure. Um, So the military wrestles with quite a few environmental issues. After all, the Department of Defense is the largest organization in the world by people (laughs) employed, has a budget of just over $700 billion a year, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware. (laughs) And the one budget or item that is passed by Congress every year, of course, is the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, but also, of course, owns a lot of real estate. And if you were to look at the DOD as a federal agency, the total real estate occupied or owned by the military is about the entire state of Virginia. And of course, the military does a lot of things to include things that impact the environment and potentially harm uh, the environment. It's a very unique uh, aspect of environmental law. In fact, under American law, the vast majority of major environmental laws fully applied to the military and the DOD as a federal agency. It's treated as a co-equal federal agency like any other federal agency. Absolutely. So I know that like junior JAGs will look on and uh, work on environmental impact statements if their fighter base wants to build a new fuel depot or something it, like Exactly that. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a fascinating area of law, um, of administrative law, environmental law. So you merge for, uh, reference the National Environmental Policy Act, There's no blanket exemption for DOD military matters, so the military complies with all these core environmental statutes, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, just fill in the blank. 
Um, and then I became interested in climate change when I was in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, which is home to the largest naval base in the world, home to several aircraft carriers, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, and is home to the Atlantic fleet. It's also uniquely impacted by sea level rise and nuisance flooding, and climate change is exacerbating that quite a bit. In Norfolk, the sea is rising and the soil is sinking. So sort of a twofer, a double whammy, if you will. Um, and I was there during a time when there's a lot of emphasis on climate change, climate security during the Obama administration, and it was fairly prominent in uh, national security strategy documents. And so when I was in Norfolk, we started looking at this issue from a whole of government, holistic type level. Wow, I mean, that's shocking. I'm, I'm picturing it right now. We hear about things like Seychelles and other islands that appear to be sinking as the, as the water rises. What I'm thinking about when you talked about the budget is long-term consequences here also include to our economy. If the NDA is the one thing Congress can get done, even if they're scrapping with each other, how much would be lost, I wonder, if something happened to that position that the Navy holds in Norfolk? Well, it's a huge hot-button political issue. Um, what's really interesting, and in, there hasn't been much climate change legislation in this country since the administration turnover, but there actually has been forward-looking climate change provisions via the NDAA addressing vulnerabilities to military installations. The, the hot button issue, of course, as you referenced, um, Elisa, which is should, should climate change be factored into any kind of base realignment or closure? And that is sort of the million-dollar question that's sort of sitting out there for Congress. Or billion-dollar question, right? Billion right? Yeah. And I'm also thinking about um, the fine people of, this, of the Commonwealth of Virginia right. who uh, much of their economy, frankly, is sustained uh, by the presence of the military there. So I am sure that the political leaders in and around the Norfolk area should be concerned if they are not already about what would happen to their constituents. But broadly speaking, how is climate change a national security issue? I know it, uh, it probably seems obvious to some of our listeners who may have heard us talk about the Arctic and some other issues that we've addressed on these casts, but let, let's break it down. Give us some examples as well. Sure. So I, it's, it's a big issue, and I've always said that climate change is a really super wicked problem. It's an interdisciplinary problem affecting not just national security, but the environment, the economy, a whole host of issues. I sort of look at the issue of climate change, national security, and the nexus via three lenses, climate adaptation, climate mitigation, and climate response. And I'll walk you through each one with examples. Um, the first is climate adaptation. In the broadest sense, this is what I dealt with in Norfolk. The question is, how do you adapt from an infrastructure standpoint to sea level rise, recurrent flooding, and weather events that are exacerbated by, by climate change? And military installations that are resilient to climate change effects, they have to be increasingly aware of how weather patterns and sea level rise are affecting it. The classic case, of course, is sea level rise in Norfolk, but also includes extreme weather events, which climate science suggests that there's an attribution between climate change and extreme weather. Um, and we saw that with several fighter jets damaged by Hurricane Michael last fall at Tyndall Air Force Base. It also impacts overseas, as you mentioned, resources. Um, you said that mentioned the Seychelles, at least, Elisa. A lot of people don't know that there's an Air Force radar station uh, at the Marshall Islands that is valued at about a billion dollars that is uniquely vulnerable to, to sea level rise. And there are some projections that suggest that that will be underwater within two decades. And of course, there's also local communities that are uh, vulnerable to climate change and the military's call to respond. So can, can we just pause for just a second? Because I think the critical thing that people need to take away from this as well is those, those places that you have just referenced have incredible strategic importance to us, too. To lose them would be a significant loss. 
Exactly right. So you know, there was um, fighter jet base at Tyndall Air Force Base after Hurricane Michael. Camp Lejeune after Hurricane Florence was severely damaged. So I think that what your listeners should be aware of is just not just a sort of infrastructure issue. It's also a military readiness issue, such that sure. those military assets, which are so valuable, those are well, we need us to deploy overseas. Just look at the any sort of issues going on now with Iran and, and others. Pick your hot spot of the day. Uh, those are the resources going overseas. But this isn't new. I mean, I remember I had just left Langley Air Force Base when it got crazily flooded in around the 2003 time frame. So this has been, you know, an issue that we've been dealing with for quite a while. Right. I think the military is sort of very pragmatic about these issues, very apolitical. And so they're looking at these sort of um, holistically. But again, it's, it's sort of, it's not going away anytime soon. So if I can, just the second lens is, um, so that was adaptation. So the second lens I look at is climate mitigation, um, which is often the focus of all the international agreements that your listeners hear about, Kyoto, the Paris Accord, the United Nations Framework on, on Climate Change, which is the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. We know, of course, that um, human activity is causing climate change. The climate science is uh, pretty clear on that matter right now. But, of course, the military is an enormous emitter and consumer of energy and fossil fuels. In fact, just last week, and I'll link this on this maybe the show notes, um, a report was issued at Brown University's Watson, Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs, finding that the Department of Defense is the single largest consumer of energy in the United States and the world's single largest institutional consumer of petroleum. In fact, if the DOD was just a, a country, wow. it, would be, it would be number 55 on the climate and mitigation, wow. uh, rather, wow. emissions globally. front globally. globally. So it's ahead of Denmark, it's ahead of Sweden, sort of major European countries which have large militaries. So the open question, again, there's a lot of billion-dollar questions on this podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the open question is, you know, how do we account for these emissions with any kind of domestic legal governance or international legal governance? The Paris Climate Accord did not provide for an exemption to military activities. So it was very interesting to people like me who follow this. So the question is, how do we account for this um, from a mitigation uh, standpoint? Somewhat related to that, and your listeners may be familiar with the notion of energy security and operational energy. Um, Domestically, a military base just wants to continue operations, and it needs to be energy resilient following a storm. And of course, overseas on a mission, think of um, a supply line in Afghanistan, uh, fossil fuel supply lines can actually be a mission vulnerability. So there's an element of you need to have energy uh, that's nimble and light and doesn't have a heavy footprint overseas. Right. So uh, just to break it down to the layperson, we're talking about like fuel trucks, right? Exactly. So fuel trucks going and supplying, you know, forward operating locations are, you know, a magnet for terrorist activity. Um, and of course, if they get disrupted, then it affects you know the the operating location that needs that and, fuel. And let's add too, you know, beyond the military. I mean, we have to remember too that in the first Gulf War, I believe. So correct me if I'm wrong, because you would know this history better <laughs> than I do. But am, am I correct that one of the things that Saddam did to start to squeeze us, if I recall correctly, was he set fire to his own. That's right. Oil. Right. Right. And I mean, this was, I don't remember whether it was the refineries themselves or something else. I think it was the crude, really, coming out of the ground that he set fire to it. And we had to, you know, engage in a highly dangerous, really risky operation to stop that. But the point being, 
He was trying to hit us where we hurt. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, Secretary Mattis famously said, as Central Commander, unleash me from the tether of fuel. He viewed that very much. It's not an environmental issue, it's actually a national security issue mm -hmm. when you're over, overly reliant on those um, long oil truck fuel supply lines, as you mentioned, about. So the final lens is where things get really interesting, if you weren't interested before. <laughs> <laughs> the final lens is, uh, is climate response. Um, climate change, of course, knows no boundaries and has both an international and domestic component. So the question is, how do we respond to climate change's effects at home and abroad? Broadly speaking, climate change is best thought of, I think, as a threat accelerant and that it exacerbates existing weather events and environmental stressors. So, of course, a hurricane or wildfire may already exist, but climate change amplifies it. It makes it even more powerful based upon a variety of environmental conditions. At home, this can increase the demand signal for defense support to civil authorities uh, following a natural disaster. Look at Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, where the military, oftentimes the National Guard, sometimes active duty, is called upon to help out communities that are vulnerable to these uh, events. Overseas, uh, climate change is serving as a catalyst for conflict. I like that term because it kind of says a lot about how climate change is undermining political instability. Uh, we saw that with Syria, for example, a huge drought from uh, 2007 to 2010, which led to massive internal population movements within the nation from rural to urban areas as the drought exacerbated the, and harmed the farming um, food supply situation. So that kind of set the stage for an already difficult political environment mm. that was occurring. Yeah, and I, I think I remember seeing on YouTube some images of Bangladeshi villages just literally being swept into the sea, right, by these giant, um, you know, floods, storm surges. Right, and no, there's a couple ground zeros where I look at as sort of canary in the coal mines, for lack of a better term, mm. and one of those is Bangladesh, mm -hmm. where it's a very densely populated area, um, uniquely vulnerable to sea level rise. An enormous percentage of the population lives within a one meter of sea level rise to, to the Indian Ocean. And the other one I, I use is Yemen, which mm -hmm. is sort of uh, another uh, unfortunate situation where we believe that Yemen will run out of um, water in our life very shortly, and, and climate change is, is sort of accelerating that, that trend. And Yemen is obviously incredibly politically unstable exactly. at the moment. Exactly. And the question is, who's going to sur supply the Yemenis with that water is going to be Oman, Saudi Arabia, the United States. I mean, that, that's a that's an or open to your question. point where there be just the kind of mass migration that we've never seen, right? Uh, this, ever in the history of the planet, documented. Exactly, and it gets, it gets kind of dire very quickly. But the, the threats are real it's in the sense of. But. <laughs> but no, this notion of climate change refugees, you know, environmental refugees. That's a real. Uh, concern that we have to wrestle with. I didn't mention small island developing states. You mentioned the Seychelles, and thank you for mentioning that, um, Alyssa, because small island developing states such as Tuvalu, Vanuatu, sort of these small Pacific island states, they're literally, their existential, their very existence is under threat because of sea level rise and exacerbated by climate change. And so the question is, what do you do with, with a nation that no longer uh, can support human life? That's a fundamental question for our mm, Some of which have monarchs, prime ministers. Right. What happens next? Exactly, exactly. So that's just a quick snapshot of uh, adaptation, mitigation, and response. I'm happy to dive into that later in the podcast. I'll talk about the Arctic a little bit later. Yes. <laughs> so these past two years, 2018 and 2019, they've been very busy years for 
climate change and our understanding of its national security impacts. Could you talk some more about those things? Absolutely. So in 2018, of course, we were still recovering from the damage done by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which really wrecked devastation on that uh, community in, in, in Puerto Rico. And 2018 saw two major climate science reports emerge. One was the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report indicating that the window to address climate change is rapidly shrinking. shrinking. Um, we will reach 1.5 degrees Celsius, not Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial norms much sooner than we thought. And then at that point, uh, a lot of the science modeling is not really mature enough to know exactly what the impacts will be. A month later, the National Climate Assessment, which is required by U.S. law, passed in 1990, used to be a very uh, bipartisan issue, uh, expressed further alarm about the national security effects of climate change. It's, it's a voluminous report, and we can link to it during the show notes, but I would ask maybe your, your listeners who are interested in it, the executive summary for policymakers is really easy to read. It's about a half an hour, 45 minutes, and it really outlines the national security impacts of, of climate change in a very kind of sobering uh, manner. Um, of course, while all of these reports are happening, <laughs> we had a pretty devastating hurricane season in North Carolina, harming military bases at uh, Camp Lejeune and the Florida Gulf Coast, of course, at Hurricane Michael with Tyndall Air Force Base uh, as well. California wildfire season was unlike anything we've seen in modern times, and that devastated whole communities in, in California. And let, let's break this down, too. When you talk about damage to Florida, you're talking about the presence of SOCOM which is down there, right? And then in California, we have some of remain, even though many base closures have occurred, some of the more important bases. Exactly. I was, I was stationed in, in Lamore, California for a period of time, which is in the Central Valley. And so um, the, the wildfires were a little bit further north in Paradise, uh, California. But again, I mean, people, emergency responders, National, California National Guard had to assist those, that community in, um, in frankly evacuating from those uh, wildfires. Um, of course, while all this was happening, unfortunately, the United States was in the process of withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, which I thought was a mistake. I think American leadership is fundamental on this issue. But of course, we're actually still a part of, as a side note, we're kind of a, a party still to the Paris Climate Accord. We can't withdraw as a legal matter until the day after the November 2020 presidential election. <laughs> so it's an executive agreement, so a future president theoretically could get, could get back in. Um, it's not a treaty. Um, so if there is a silver lining, and it's hard to you know, find these, but I think there is a silver lining in the sense that in, in light of what we're seeing with our very eyes, the wildfires, the, the extreme weather, um, there's been a groundswell and a weirdness I've never seen before uh, in following this issue for quite some time, particularly from the youth throughout the world and in the nation. Um, you're seeing that with the Juliana climate change case, which is the children's lawsuit against the U.S. government which is moving towards trial as we speak. Um, and major candidates are actually having climate change and climate plans as part of their uh, campaign platform, which we haven't really seen in American history. So in the face of inaction and face of seeing things with our very eyes, we're, we're starting to see a groundswell of support. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security from the ABA. We're going to end this week's episode here, but join us again in two weeks to hear the rest of our conversation about the national security implications of climate change with Mark Nevitt.
You can learn more about today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or in the notes to this podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow and engage with us on Twitter at ABANatSec. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.